Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 5? This evening we'll conclude what we began last week in verses 1 through 10 as we consider the appointment of Christ as great high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, let's read verses 1 through 10 together, and then we'll ask for the Lord's blessing. Verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, this is your word, and it is a perfect word. We pray that you would grant us by your Spirit's enabling eyes to see and ears to hear hearts to believe. Lord, I pray that as we examine the truths under inspiration here, the priestly ministry of Christ would become clearer to us and by consequence more precious to us. We love you and we pray for all of your goodwill to accompany your word in our lives because you know our hearts And you know all that we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage this evening that we've just read together, Jesus Christ is presented before us as our great high priest. As Aaron in ancient days would approach the throne of God in his priestly robes with the blood of sacrifices, so Jesus is said in this passage to make sacrifices to God for his people to mediate their relationship with God. Jesus, the perfect God-man, is the pinnacle of all such biblical priests. His ministry is infinitely more effective than all other priests because Jesus is infinitely more qualified for his ministry and brings before God the merit of a ministry which is infinitely more effective in its execution 
than any other priest. As we've seen in Hebrews 5, 1 through 5, in our considerations last week, a true high priest must meet two major qualifications. Firstly, a high priest must be divinely appointed. It is impossible for a priest to take an honor for himself to be a priest. It is presumptuous because man cannot approach God on his own initiative. And therefore, to be a high priest, one must be under the specific call of God to execute that role of mediating the relationship between God and men. But not only must the high priest be divinely appointed, but as a second qualification, the priest must be able to sympathetically minister to the ignorant and wayward in relating to God properly. We examined last week that the work of a high priest involves far more than merely the ritual of killing animals on the altar and offering them to God. There is heart work that has to go on in the offering of those sacrifices. The priest must be able to deal sympathetically with those people whom he is called to represent. Sin renders us helpless. It overwhelms people with doubt that there's any acceptance for sinners such as ourselves. And haven't you wondered at times as well whether or not you are actually redeemed when the depth of your sinfulness is revealed to you in your own heart? It takes a sympathetic high priest one who is himself beset with weakness to minister effectively on behalf of such a people. The line of Aaron, though useful in this role of ministering sympathetically, was fundamentally flawed to actually accomplish these tasks effectively. For one thing, though they were called and appointed by God to their task, their own mortality and sinfulness meant that there was always a need for another priest and a need for another sacrifice and, in truth, a need for a different sort of priest altogether. And in their sympathetic ministry to the people... Even though they could certainly identify with the weaknesses of the people around them, their personal sinfulness, the sinfulness of the priest, guaranteed that whatever hope they offered through the system of sacrifice was temporary at best, or at worst, merely external. Remember that our passage describes how these merely human priests had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then those of the people. Into this great need for a priest who can actually accomplish these ministries and duties with effectiveness comes the Lord Jesus Christ. His mission is not merely to offer a once-for-all sacrifice for sins as a high priest and the Lamb of God, but... His mission includes the goal that through his life, he would fulfill all of the qualifications necessary to be a high priest at all. The question we left off with last week was how Jesus meets those qualifications. We know that he did, in fact, become qualified. In fact, look back with me at Hebrews 5, 9. 
Put your eyes down there on that verse. It says in Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It says there at the beginning that he was made perfect. And this is what it refers to. It refers to the completion of Jesus' qualifications to be the great high priest. We know this because from Scripture we understand that he wasn't made perfect morally. It's not as though Jesus was something less than a perfect person and had to attain a level of perfection in his moral status or in his intimacy with God, which he did not have prior to some event in his life. Rather, in this context, this word perfect has more the idea of completion, being brought to the telos, the end of something, the goal for which it was set out. It means that Jesus, through his life and ministry, achieved every qualification necessary to be a high priest and achieved those qualifications in such a way that he becomes the exemplary high priest, the pinnacle high priest, the one towards which everything wants to become or wishes that it could have been. He is fully qualified in his life to represent you and me for eternity before the Father. Verses 7 through 10 in our passage are all about establishing that Jesus is a great high priest by virtue of, first of all, his divine appointment after the order of Melchizedek. We actually see that bookended at the very end in verse number 10. But in verses 7 and 8 primarily, we see the second qualification, which is what we're going to zero in on this evening, which is his sympathetic ministry of sacrifices and offerings. Now, As a brief review from last week, these sympathetic sacrifices do not refer in this passage to the cross of Christ. Christ certainly offered himself as a sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, but that's not the sacrifices and offerings in this passage. You see, in verse number 7, what Jesus offers up as a priest to God are Prayers and supplications. These are the things that qualify him to be great high priest because they establish his sympathetic ministry to the wayward and ignorant from verse number two. This very interesting idea. And so this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to structure this around two questions. The first is this. Why was Jesus' incarnate life sufficient to qualify him as high priest? And the second question we're going to ask is, how does his life minister to us? So the first question this evening we want to examine from the text is this. Why was Jesus' life, described for us specifically in verses 7 and 8, sufficient to qualify him as a high priest? And in short, the answer is that his obedience in life was perfect and exemplary in every category, type, or kind of temptation. What occurred in Jesus' life is that as a man, he was daily confronted with opposition to obedience. I think we could talk about the oppositions that Jesus faced to obedience to the Father in at least three major categories, and we briefly touched on them last week. He had physical oppositions to his obedience, There were emotional or willful 
oppositions to his obedience, and there were spiritual oppositions to obedience. His physical limitations as a man with respect to his human nature threatened his dependence on God as his greatest need rather than bread, water, or sleep. Do you remember in the wilderness temptations as Jesus is fasted, what the first temptation that the devil offers him is? Turn these stones into bread. The devil there is taking advantage of the physical limitation and weakness of Jesus as flesh and saying, your very physical makeup is now in opposition to you prizing God above all else. He presents before Jesus the choice of love. What do you love more, God or your bodily cravings? On what do you depend to meet your needs? Your father or bread? Jesus further experienced emotional opposition to his obedience. His intellectual and emotional life was under oppression constantly from the experiences of rejection that he suffered. His hometown rejected him. His family called him insane. The leaders and those who understood the word that he had revealed were the ones who sought to kill him. And in the end, he predicted and saw fulfilled the betrayal and desertion of those who were closest to him. All of these experiences daily urged him, like the prophet Job in the Old Testament, to curse God and die. As if this wasn't enough, he was under spiritual assault from the devil and the devil's unholy angels who opposed his ministry at every turn and offered temptation to Jesus in an effort to derail his mission. Yet, as Jesus Christ conquered each successive temptation and overcame every successive obstacle to obedience, his life was molded to reach a full, complete qualification to represent us. Jesus was perfect in this sense. Not that he became a better person at one stage of his life as compared with the previous stage. No, he became perfect as a representative for you and for me. Jesus' experiences are such that there's not another human being alive who can come up against a trial or temptation and say, Jesus doesn't know much about this. Friends, the representation of Jesus for you and for me doesn't mean that he experienced everything it's possible to experience, but rather that every type of experience in every sphere of Jesus' life, he experienced it to such a degree that your experience in life and my experiences in life will always fall short of the extremity and exemplary character of his experiences. Do you have physical pain? Jesus died the most painful of deaths. Do you have heartbreak as an obstacle to your love and devotion to God? Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Are you assaulted in spiritual warfare by temptation that wears you down on a daily basis? Jesus was confronted by the devil himself at the point when he was most vulnerable 
and weakest. And through all of that opposition, Jesus was perfected through that suffering because he came through with complete, total integrity. He maintained his faith in obedience to his heavenly father. And as one who became qualified by his life of exemplary suffering, God consequently appointed him to be made high priest, not from Aaron's line, but to be a priest king whose appointment stands forever like Melchizedek from the book of Genesis. And thus, the reason that Jesus was qualified to be a great high priest is exactly because his trials and temptations were as great as any you and I will ever experience and were typical of the experience of all humanity. Jesus overcame every obstacle. He obeyed the will of his heavenly Father by faith through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This was exactly what every other priest in history could not do. Those other priests were sympathetic in their ministry on the complete wrong foundation of shared sinfulness. It was a completely wrong foundation. Those priests had the compassion of one blind man for another blind man. Of one drowning for another who drowns next to them. And Jesus was not like that. Jesus experienced the trial of threat to his soul through temptations to disobey his father's will, and he overcame every single time. That's why he's qualified to represent you, the ignorant and wayward. On that basis, as verse number nine says, he has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. The father recognized his qualification and in verse number 10 tells us that he was then designated by God to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This brings us to the second question that we're going to examine this evening. The first was, how did Jesus' life qualify him to be our great high priest? And our second question is this, how does the life of Jesus then minister to you and to me? Firstly, what it does is it teaches us how to exercise our own priestly function amid the obstacles of this life. This is actually one of the controlling questions in the thought of the author of this letter. In order to understand this, we actually need to go back to chapter number four. This is amazing. Look back there with me. Verse number 14 of chapter four. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect, every category, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we're not going to go back and preach that passage, but consider the main proposition and the primary application. See, Jesus is our great high priest who exercises a ministry of sympathy towards you from a place of moral perfection. He was tempted like you, but he's without sin. So from his foundation of moral perfection, he ministers sympathetically. He knows what you're going through in your temptations. But then look at the exhortation in verse 16, chapter 4. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is staggering because for the first time in human history, God's people generally are made into priests who not only have the privilege but are commanded to exercise their right to approach God directly and find grace for themselves to help them in time of need. The need for such a privilege for you and for me is easily recognizable because chapters 3 and 4 in Hebrews are all about the oppositions to our faithful obedience. Everything is against us in persevering to the very end, in holding fast our confession. We have a daily and great need for divine grace. But the question must then be, how in the world do I actually do this? How do I go to the throne of grace which is in heaven? It's one thing for our Lord. He ascended bodily. He's there now. He can go to the throne of grace. Of course, he sees the glory of God and stands in its manifest presence day and night. But here I am on earth, as the psalmist says, facing a thousand enemies on the right hand and on the left, and all their arrows are pointed at me and my faith. How may I go before the throne of grace? Is there anyone who can show me by example how I should approach God? And ask for his grace such that I actually receive my necessary resources unto faithfulness. Yes, you do have such a one. Look back now at chapter 5 and verse number 7. Here we have pictured for us by the great high priest exactly how we may approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's read this together again. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In this verse, we have summarized how priests living underneath the curse, may obtain every grace to meet every obstacle and come through as faithful and obedient children of God. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the means by which we receive grace from God for faithful obedience in the face of every obstacle is prayer. Andrew Murray, in his work with Christ in the school of prayer, he begins this way. Of all the traits of a life like Christ, there is none higher and more glorious than conformity to him in the work that now engages him without ceasing in the Father's presence, his all-prevailing intercession. The more we abide in him and grow unto his likeness, will his priestly life work in us mightily, and our life become what his is, a life that ever pleads and prevails for men. And so with our remaining time, let's examine a few of the qualities that are presented to us in the prayers of our Lord, which allowed him to receive the grace to obey in the face of all of his obstacles, and which I'm confident are available to us as well. First of all, notice that the prayers of our Lord were wholehearted. 
I think this is what it means when it says in verse number seven that he offered up these prayers with loud cries and tears. These words tell us that the prayers of Jesus were prayers of sorrow, literal weeping, and that word loud cries has the idea of violently loud, articulate cries or shouts to God in prayers of desperation. I think what we are to glean from this, brothers and sisters, is that the prayers of the Lord Jesus were always genuine reflections of his heart before the Lord. The Puritan William Bridge put it this way, what is prayer and the nature of it, he asks. Prayer is the pouring out of the soul to God. Not the pouring out of words, nor the pouring out of expressions, but the pouring out of the soul to God. We see such examples all throughout the Old Testament. The saints who knew truly how to commune with God and enjoy intimate fellowship with him were saints who knew how to bear their hearts before the Lord. Listen to a few example verses. Psalm 6 says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It goes, grows weak because of all my foes. Psalm 13 reads, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Psalm 22 is the messianic psalm, which many scholars believe was recited in full by the Lord upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Friends, Jesus Christ went before the Father with the full weight of his burden. In your own prayers, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you're somehow behaving more righteously when you ignore the genuine state of your heart in your prayers before the Lord. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that you're somehow expressing greater devotion or piety by being emotionally distant from God. The Lord Jesus offered up his priestly sacrifice of prayer with loud cries and tears. It is right for us to do the same. Not only were Jesus' prayers wholehearted, but they were dependent. Notice how he describes, the author describes God as the object of Jesus' prayers. The end of verse number seven, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. You see, Jesus' prayers were to one that he understood to be the ultimate provider of every state, stage, and provision of life. Jesus went to the Father as a child goes to his earthly parents. Martin Luther, the great reformer, his view on prayer was sometimes described this way, that 
For him, he understood that prayer is the conversation of the dependent and trusting child who's eager to voice both thanks and requests with the loving father, and the father in turn is eager to hear from his children. And this is a crucial point because it helps us understand the answer to the question of why Jesus prayed at all. You see, Jesus did not pray merely as an example for us, as though he's going to show us the steps to solving the math problem, but he's on a different level and doesn't actually need to follow those steps himself. But for, for you all, down here on this other level, you need, to just, you need to follow those examples, even though it wasn't truly necessary for our Lord. Now, Jesus' example of prayer were real examples. His tears were not crocodile tears before God the Father. His desperation was not a great drama to somehow point up God's great storytelling ability. Jesus prayed because as the incarnate God-man, he gave up every inherent resource to overcome obstacles by virtue of his divinity. Jesus never overcame temptation by strength of will. Jesus never resorted to his divine creative power to feed himself unless directed by his father. Note, Jesus, throughout his humiliation as weak man, took only what was provided for him and directed as part of his ministry from his heavenly father. And so, when Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death... It was no mere ritual. He was praying to the Father as the only one who could save him from death by his divine will. Jesus prayed as one who had nowhere else to go and no one else who could meet his needs except for his heavenly Father. And friends, this is the attitude for you and for me that comes to God in prayer and says, Lord God and Father, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. John Calvin, the great reformer in Switzerland, younger than Luther, writes of these very verses. He says, and what application is to be made of this? Even this. That whenever our evils press upon us and overwhelm us, we may call to mind the Son of God who labored under the same. And since he's gone before us, there's no reason for us to faint. We are at the same time reminded that deliverance from evils can be found from no one other but from God alone. And what better guidance can we have as to prayer than the example of Christ? He betook himself immediately to the Father, and thus the apostle indicates what ought to be done by us when he says that he offered prayers to him who was able to deliver him from death. For by these words... He intimates that he rightly prayed because he fled to God, the only deliverer. Believer, is it not true that in our lives we often pray to God as if it is the polite thing to do to allow God to meet our needs? As though deep down we know that were we not to depend on God, we could surely provide for our needs ourselves. But that since we are Christians, it is the right thing to do to allow God to somehow be involved in our lives. 
Friends, kindly, those kinds of thoughts or implicit attitudes are blasphemous. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? Paul preaches again in Acts 17 that it's in the power of God and his presence that you live and move and have your being. James also rebukes us for thinking that we have our lives planned and that we have some sort of ability to provide for our needs as though buying and selling and profiting were within the reach of our willpower and our good business sense. Rather, if the Lord wills, you will do this or that. Friends, your prayers will never find grace to overcome obstacles to your obedience so long as you believe that you can give your own grace to help in time of need. Not only were the prayers of Jesus wholehearted, not only were they dependent, but they were reverential. They were reverential. Look at the end of verse number seven, the very last phrase. He was heard because of his reverence. This idea of reverence is the idea of profound respect for a deity. This concept isn't very easily understood by us today because for us in our culture at this time, irreverence is actually something of a virtue in our society. The cultural attitude is that nothing is to be given unless first proven to be deserved. Irreverence is the brazen disregard for propriety in a given situation. It's the attitude that sees nothing in the world as inherently deserving of honor and respect, much less God or true religion or genuine piety. The reverence here mentioned in the prayers of our Lord refers to the total submission of his heart to God's will, looking at God as the one deserving of supreme honor and pride of place. Reverence goes boldly before the throne of grace and confidently names God as Father and simultaneously falls on bended knee and without lifting up eyes to heaven says, not my will but yours be done. Brothers and sisters, never forget the distinction between boldness in prayer and flippancy. Let's give an example. I hope and trust that before the meals that you partake of, you offer thanks to the Lord. When you do so, do you say the words as fast as you can so that you can get to food? Are you more conscious of how others will perceive your prayer than you are of the one to whom you are speaking? That's not reverence for God's holy state. It's not reverence for his gracious provision. Only a fool or a wicked person would carry on a conversation with the president or with royalty over one's shoulder or in between text messages. How much more does God's station as the high and lifted up one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, deserve your honor and your complete, willing, prompt submission? Jesus was heard because of his reverence. A prayer that comes to God as one on equal terms with him will never be heard because it usurps the place of the one true God. Jesus' prayers were wholehearted, they were dependent, and they were reverential. 
These are the characteristics of Jesus going before the throne of grace presented to us. And I want to offer us a few applications in our remaining time. And I want to ask this question because it's helpful for us to examine our own selves. Why is it that we do not pray fervently as Jesus did? Why is it that so often we fail to obtain resources from God to obey under duress? I'm going to offer five brief ones. We don't pray fervently as Jesus did, firstly, because it's possible that we don't count obedience by faith a worthy cause for which to strive. Unfortunately, this is all too often true of us. Jerry Bridges, I think, talks about this in his book, Respectable Sins, where he describes the fact that very often as Christians, there are certain sins that we accept culturally and believe that are not really worth dealing with because they're not that big of a deal. It was not this way for Jesus. Jesus expressly said that he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. His greatest desire in prayer was to rejoin the glory of God in heaven. Jesus counted obedience by faith a worthy cause for which to strive with all of his heart and with all of his soul and mind and strength. Secondly, we don't pray fervently as Jesus did, perhaps because we believe that our strength of will for righteousness is greater than that of our Lord's. What else could it be? Jesus prayed because he needed resources from his father. You do not pray. It must be because you have some strength of will that Jesus did not possess or access. You have an edge on our Lord in obtaining resources. Perhaps you even believe, number three, that the resources you can have external to your own will are of a greater quantity or greater quality than what was available to Christ. Number four, you don't pray fervently as Jesus did because maybe you feel that you just don't know how to pray effectively for these resources and so you never make the effort to learn. Finally, it's possible that you don't pray fervently as Jesus did because deep down you you believe that there are some sins that are inevitable. They cannot be overcome. If this is the case, it means that your confidence in the sinfulness of sin is much greater than your confidence in redeeming, transforming grace. If obedience is not a realistic goal, then why would you pray for resources to accomplish it? But friends, how can we learn to pray fervently as Jesus did? How can we learn to make our prayers such that they're wholehearted, dependent, reverential. I want to offer you a few suggestions. Number one, meditate often on your helplessness in all things apart from your gracious provision. The great danger of living in a prosperous country is that our, the, our provisions are so close at hand that we fail to see the hand of providence bringing them from the grocery aisle to our cart. Meditate often on the true state of your helplessness. Number two, pray the Psalms regularly. Don't just read them. Pray them. In times of distress, express it through the Psalms. 
when you are opposed in obedience by sin, count such oppositions as your enemies and pray for God's vengeance to be done on your sinful heart. I would actually encourage you to go back. Pastor Sean last semester preached several sermons on the book of Habakkuk that went into some more detail regarding how to pour out our hearts before the Lord through the example of the Old Testament. Thirdly, I would suggest for you that you should pray from the overflow of the burden of your heart. What I mean by that is this. Great burdens of the soul can never be unloaded in a sentence or two. In the same way that when you've had a really bad day, it takes some time to talk through it with your spouse or with a family member or close friend. Or when you experience a greater tragedy or loss or heartbreak, it can take weeks, months, or even years of counseling and conversation in order to work through that. Friends, in a similar way, the staying power of prayer that which not only drives you to your knees but keeps you on your knees is the greatness of your burden. It takes time to unload these burdens before the Lord in prayer. But friends, not only does the priestly ministry of Christ work for us through the example of prayer, but his life, Jesus' life of representation, ministers to us by giving us hope in every obstacle. I want to give you just three, as we close, three brief ways that the life of Jesus as a representative high priest gives hope for you. The first is that it gives you confidence that God will graciously hear you. Look again at verse number eight. Verse seven says he was heard because of his reverence. And verse eight says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Friends, God answered his beloved son because of his total dependence and submission. And what have we learned from the prologue of John's gospel? To all who believe in him, they're given the right to become children of God as well. Do you know that as God hears and eagerly grants abundant resource to his beloved son, to obey under every opposition by faith. There is no less eagerness and joy from your heavenly Father to grant you every resource to obey. God graciously hears your prayers as he graciously heard Jesus' prayers because he prayed like you and he prayed like me by faith with the Spirit and he received. Second hope is that the sympathetic representative ministry of Jesus means that obedience is a genuine possibility. At core here, it's a very simple but profound hope throughout the, Old, the New Testament. Because Jesus overcame sin and trial, you can overcome sin and trial. As he was faithful unto death, so you can be faithful unto death. Friends, there is no temptation to overtake you but what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able. And more than that, he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. There is no sin in your life that is inevitable. 
for which there are no graces to help in your time of need, for which you cannot obtain mercy, for every need, for every depth of sin, there is a grace equal, sufficient, and even greater to overcome and provide resources for true obedience so that you can, in your life with Paul, say, I have a conscience that's void of offense before God and man. The third hope is this. The representative ministry of Christ in his life through his prayers and tears and suffering and obedience means that your priestly ministry is guaranteed to be effective. One of the great themes of the Bible is that as Adam was a priest unto God and the people of Israel were prophesied to be made priests unto God. So we find the fulfillment in the book of Revelation that now in the exaltation of the Lamb, we have been made kings and priests to our God and we will reign with him forever ever and ever. And your priestly ministry has already begun because as God's children, you are called not to confess your sins uh, to some elite class of God-fearer, but rather to confess your sins one to another. And that if any of you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, allowing you to confess your sins directly to God, to find cleansing and forgiveness for those things. You have been called and initiated and qualified to be a priest unto God, like Jesus is a priest unto God, lesser than his infinitely effective ministry, but no less real. You are priest to God, and your ministry is priest to one another and to the world, and before God in your prayers and offerings and supplications are guaranteed to be effective because of the effectiveness of your great high priest on your behalf. I would encourage you to study the responsibilities in Scripture associated with your ministry as priest. And then with confidence, joyfully thank God that your ministry is guaranteed to be effective in its work through prayers and sacrifices before God. Because the one with whom you are in union, his ministry was effective first. And you cannot fail where he succeeded. Friends, the priestly ministry of Christ is wrapped up in his humanity because he obeyed with the same resources available that you and I obey with. It is possible for us to obey by faith the way that Jesus did because of his ministry for us. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Father, for these truths from your word. Lord, would you do with them according to all of your purposes? We pray for obedience and faith. Grant us strength to be sanctified into this image that we have presented before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. I hope you have a wonderful week. The Lord bless you. You are dismissed.